I'm Starla. I'm Mary. And I'm Jocelyn. And And we're we're the Snarky Boob Queens. This is our disclaimer. The Snarky Boob Queens podcast is for informational and or entertainment purposes only and is not a substitute for medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. If you have breastfeeding difficulties or concerns about you or your child's health, please reach out to your healthcare provider or an IBCLC. Hey everyone, welcome back. It is the new year, so 2020 is officially over, which is something I know most of us have looked forward to. So we're officially in 2021 and the year doesn't look very different yet. And we continue to live in plague times. So for that reason, I will be solo today. So unfortunately, Mary and Starla will not be joining me, but they do send their well wishes to our listeners and they will be back for our next episode. So I wasn't going to record an episode at all because I thought it would be sad if it was just me because one is the loneliest number, but I realized then that I talk to myself all the time and it's fine. So this episode is going to be a little bit different, but I'm super excited about it. I was geeking out about it all week, so stick around because I think you're going to love it. Um, We're going to dig into the news and then we are going to talk about the history of infant feeding. In the news this week, there was an article entitled Drinking Cow's Milk While Breastfeeding May Cut Food Allergies. And I was really excited about the timing of this article because on the last episode, we talked about breastfeeding myths. And one of those myths is that you have to cut out certain foods while you're breastfeeding. And cow's milk is often one of those foods that moms avoid during breastfeeding and fear that it can cause issues with their babies. So this article that was released January 6th reads, children whose mothers drink more cow's milk during breastfeeding are at a lower risk for developing food allergies, according to a study recently published in Nutrients. So the study was done at Chalmers University of Technology in Gothenburg, Sweden, and it compared the dietary intake of 508 pregnant and lactating women and validated the data with biomarkers of fatty acid proportions from breast milk and related this data to physician-diagnosed allergies in babies at 12 months of age. So they found that an increased maternal intake of cow's milk during lactation was associated with a lower prevalence of physician-diagnosed food allergy by 12 months of age. And the association was confirmed with biomarkers in the maternal blood and the breast milk. There was a higher prevalence of atopic eczema seen at 12 months of age among mothers with higher intakes of fruit and berries during lactation. So that was really interesting. So one of the co-authors of the study says, one hypothesis is that cow's milk contains something that activates the child's immune system and helps it to develop tolerance. This as yet unknown cause could be found in the fat of the milk or in its protein content. But it also could be the case that the milk itself is neutral in relation to the immune system. Then it might be more simply a matter of higher intake of milk fats, leading to a relatively lower intake of polyunsaturated fats. This would help because we believe high levels of polyunsaturated fat in a mother's diet can counteract 
the maturation of a child's immune system at an early age. So I thought that was really interesting. And so for all you breastfeeding moms out there, go ahead and have that chocolate milk because it could lower your baby's risk of developing food allergies. So really interesting stuff. Today, I am going to be talking to you about the history of infant feeding, and I am super excited about this topic. I geek out about lactation, but I geek out equally as much about history. And the thing about this that particularly interests me is I think that we can learn a lot from the past, and there are certain things that no matter where we are in time, the human experience is very similar. So I am going to be talking to you, a little, touching just the surface of the history of infant feeding. This is a topic that goes so deep that you could just talk about it for hours and hours and hours. So I'm going to be touching on some common beliefs about breastfeeding, some common practices, things that we've learned from the past in regard to breastfeeding. And so we're just going to do a general history and you're going to find out why it was said that bottles killed more children than gunpowder has killed men until the late 19th century. So for this episode, I did do some research and I actually did this talk 10 years ago for the South Carolina Public Health Association. And so this is an area that I have studied for a long time. But one of the resources I used was a book entitled Babies, History, Art, and Folklore. And this is by Beatrice Fontenelle and Claire de Hocourt. I said that in my French accent. It's actually Beatrice, it's Beatrice Fontenelle and Claire de Harcourt. That's my, um, that's my terrible, terrible American version of that. Um, so anyway, the authors are French. I took five years of French, and the only thing I remember how to say is I like ham. So I failed at learning French. But my French teacher was great. So anyway, I digress. So the book is called Baby's History, Art, and Folklore, and it is actually out of print, but you can find it on eBay for like $50. And it's really interesting. They talk about all areas of history in regards to infant care. So like there's chapters about pregnancy and childbirth and rocking and caring and clothing and anything related to infant care. The other resource that I used was an article by Dr. Jacqueline Wolf that was entitled Low Breastfeeding Rates and Public Health in the United States. So let's get started in ancient Rome. So actually the section of feeding in the books, Babies, History, Art, and Folklore, is a quote from Favorinius, who was a Roman philosopher, that reads, Do you imagine that nature has given breasts to women as gracious protuberances intended to decorate the chest and not to feed infants? So this was the second century. And as you can see, there has been breastfeeding debate for a long time. So here we have an ancient Roman philosopher making the argument about breastfeeding and whether they were meant as decorations for the chest or to feed infants. And so we still are having this conversation today, thousands of years later, which I find fascinating. So during this time, 
there was a lot of debate about this. So most women did breastfeed because wet nursing was reserved for the higher classes and the nobility, which we're going to talk about in a minute. But doctors were split on their opinions about breastfeeding. Many decried the practice as vile. They thought that breastfeeding was base and supported wet nursing. Um, One Roman doctor at the time stated that wet nursing was desirable so that the mother can avoid aging prematurely from the daily energy that nursing consumes. Which I find interesting because there are still pediatricians today and obstetricians telling moms that um, breastfeeding can be very stressful and that, you know, alternatives are better for the mother's um, energy and stress levels. So we've been having that argument for thousands of years. So in ancient times or ancient Roman times, if you were wealthy or you were part of the nobility and you were about to give birth to a baby, you would go to the auditorium forum to go find a wet nurse. So the forum was like a marketplace. So you could get goods and vegetables, and you also could pick up a wet nurse while you were there. So potential wet nurse candidates would be found near the lacteal columns. And they were often hired on for two-year contracts. And keep in mind that the wet nurse during this period was not solely in charge of the care of the baby. So if you were an ancient Roman nobility, you would have like a team of people who would help with the care of your infant. So you would have someone who would be responsible for changing the baby, someone else responsible for rocking the baby. And then you'd have a wet nurse who would feed the baby. And the wet nurse would not be holding the baby a lot because it thought that it warmed up her milk too much. And so you would just have a team of people. Now, these wet nurses would, there was very high expectations of them. So they were expected to follow a strict diet. Um, They were supposed to live a well-ordered life. And they were encouraged to do exercises to stimulate the breasts, such as lift buckets, lift weights, or make beds. Because that believe I, that helped with their milk supply. Um, these women were expected to abstain from any sexual activity, and they would be fined if they became pregnant. So at that time, they believed that pregnancy um, impaired the milk quality, which it can change the composition of the milk. Um, but they also had a very strong belief that sperm ruined the breast milk and someone described it as causing the breast milk to curdle like a type of cheese. So it was very, very important that they abstain for that reason because sperm was bad for breast milk. So we do have record of recipes to increase milk supply for wet nurses during that time. So in the book, The Child in Roman Gaul, Gerald Cologne gives a recipe to swallow earthworms with a honeyed wine, consume the breasts of animals that make a large amount of milk, or dilute the ashes of an owl or a bat in water and rub them on the chest. So that last one, um, I'm not a big fan of because could you imagine being a wet nurse 
and being like, okay, now I got to find an owl, capture an owl, dilute it, dilute its ashes and then rub them on my chest. Like that seems like a lot of work. So those were just some examples of things that was believed to increase milk supply. So a lot different than drinking mother's milk tea. So if these things didn't work, women were advised to appeal to the gods and make votive offerings in the shape of breasts. Um, baby bottles did exist in ancient Rome, and we do know that because they have been found in the tombs of young children and infants, which is really sad. Um, so they were vessels with spouts that were either made from glass or terracotta. And it is theorized that they also may have been used in weaning. So the only known mention of baby bottles from antiquity during this time was from the Dr. Serenus, who stated, if the child is thirsty after eating, give him some plain water with a drop of wine with the artificial nipple. This type of implement allows him to draw the liquid little by little without any risk, as if from the breast. And so there you go. In ancient Rome, they were still advising moms to top off babies if they were still hungry after eating. So that's really fascinating. So during this time, interestingly, in ancient Egypt, breastfeeding was the norm. So women breastfed their babies with the exception of the pharaoh's wives. When there was a situation where, for instance, a mother died or there was no wet nurse available um, to feed an infant who um, was unable to breastfeed for whatever reason, and they had to resort to using animal milk, the milk would be poured into a vessel that was shaped like a mother offering her breast. And I'll post a picture of this on the Facebook page, but it essentially ritualistically maternalized the milk before it was given to the infant. So that it was more like breast milk. So that's kind of weird, kind of neat. So let's fast forward to the Middle Ages. So in the Middle Ages, most women breastfed and it on-demand feeding was what they would do. So they would offer the breast as soon as the baby demanded it. And the fashion in the 15th century reflected this. And so previous to this time, they would wear dresses that had slits. But in the 15th century, they would wear low-necked dresses. So the breast could just be pushed out over the top. And the mother could nurse her baby and have her hands and arms free and go about her day. So breastfeeding was very much a normal part of culture among the general population at this time, as it had been for millennia. So it was believed at this time that milk was simply white blood. So they believed when a woman became pregnant that her menstrual blood went to nourish the baby, and then after birth, that blood rose into her breasts where it was turned into milk. So that's kind of weird. So even though the general population breastfed their babies, Women of high birth still used wet nurses and for multiple reasons, but mostly because they were devoted to bearing as many children as possible and very close together to ensure an heir. So the nobility had a lot of children um, close together and they couldn't breastfeed a baby 
during that time because oftentimes breastfeeding will suppress your fertility. And so it was important that they be able to continue to bear children. It was also believed that noble women were fragile and not able to provide like full nourishment for the babies. And so they used wet nurses and that was typical. So there is actually a miniature in the book from the 14th century from Paris that depicts a mother choosing a wet nurse. And it's one woman touching another woman's breasts. And it says she'd feel her breasts looking for ones that were not too big, not too small, nor too hard, nor too soft. And she may even taste the milk herself. Um, so that kind of reminds me of, I was going to say Little Red Riding Hood, um, Goldilocks, where she goes and is like, this one is too hard. This one is too small. Your breasts are just right. You're my, mid, you're my um, wet nurse now. So kind of weird, but that's how you would choose a wet nurse during that period. So the ideal wet nurse during this time was between 25 and 30 years old when according to one Italian doctor, this is the age when the natural heat is the strongest to give rise to good humors. And it, he also recommended that the wet nurse resemble the mother. There was other weird beliefs about wet nurses during this time. One that I think is really interesting is that the wet nurse affected the modeling of the nose of the infant. So there's an account of someone asking a monk, why does Brother John have such a beautiful nose? And the monk replied, according to true monostatic philosophy, it is because my wet nurse had soft nipples. In suckling, my nose buried itself in them as butter, where it rose and expanded like soft bread dough. Wet nurses with hard nipples make snub-nosed babies. Um, wet nurses during this time were expected to keep a strict diet. So they were to avoid onion, garlic, pepper, mint, and basil. Anything that was very strong tasting. And wet nurses during this period cared for the babies as well. So they did everything for them. They were their primary caregivers. And as a result, many infants had a stronger bond with the wet nurse than with their own mother. And they developed a lot of times lifelong bonds. Now, in spite of this, some noble women did insist on nursing their children, such as Queen Blanche de Castile. So it was said that she was a big proponent of breastfeeding her own babies. But one day while she was absent, her baby was fussing and a woman on the court gave her baby her own breast to quiet him and when queen blanche discovered it she was horrified and she hurled herself onto her son and made him vomit the foreign milk now if we fast forward a few hundred years you'll see that um queen victoria had two daughters who were insistent on breastfeeding their own babies and queen victoria was just repulsed by it so she felt that pregnancy, childbirth, and breastfeeding was animalistic, that it was based that women who were uh, at high standing and intelligent were wasting their lives if they were in the nursery. Um, so she was not a fan of pregnancy or babies and therefore not breastfeeding either. She had nine children, which she had wet nurses for all of them. 
it's really interesting that she was not a big fan of pregnancy because she did have nine children. But one thing that I think is funny about her is that she um, it had well documented that she had a very high libido. And so she was always trying to get Prince Albert alone. And while she hated being pregnant, this kind of created a problem when she was trying to just have a nice time with Prince Albert. So they had a poor understanding of contraception during that time, obviously. So they abstained in the days before and just during her period. So they thought that that would prevent her from becoming pregnant, but actually it was the opposite. So she did have nine babies, but she did not breastfeed. Okay, so anyway, that's about Queen Victoria. So let's go back to the Middle Ages. So during this period, many babies were fed pap in addition to breast milk early on. And so pap was made from milk, flour, and honey. And often it was watered down, adding wine. And it was believed that the tannins in the wine helped prevent diarrhea, although pap caused diarrhea. So that was an issue. And they gave pap because they believed that breast milk was not enough nourishment for the infant, which we see that still today. So that's really interesting. But doctors realized that this was not good. And they advised against the practice of mixed feeding early on as they recognized that it caused death. Um, so there was a push from the medical community during this time to educate about the dangers of offering early foods and of PAP. Um, babies at this time were nursed until they were about two years old and gradual weaning was encouraged. So if babies needed to be artificially fed, most of the time this was because of the death of a mother and no means of a wet nurse, then animal milk was given through a bottle that was made from animal horns. So goat horns were used uh, often, so the horn would be pierced and the milk would go inside the horn and then given to the baby. A cow's horn sometimes could be used and it'd be partially stopped with a piece of canvas or leather that the baby would suck on. And so we actually have an account of this from a gentleman from the 15th century named Thomas Platter. So referring to his mother, he said, after she had delivered me, her breasts began to give her pain. So she was unable to nurse me. I never drank from a woman's breast as my mother herself told me. That was the beginning of my woes. It was therefore necessary that I drink cow's milk from a small horn pierced with a hole, as was the custom in the country when weaning babies. So that's what they would do if a wet nurse was not available. So during this time period, wet nursing was still the number one alternative way to feed a baby if the mother was unable to breastfeed. And of course, um, for the nobility, and we actually see that wet nurses, many municipalities licensed wet nurses, and there were laws and guidelines put into place for wet nursing. One of which in Europe, for instance, was that a wet nurse could not go into the profession if her baby was less than nine months old. And so the reason for that was because oftentimes when wet nurses were, as, were nursing someone else's baby, they were nursing their own as well. But what wound up happening is that essentially 
the own wet nurse's baby oftentimes would be sacrificed in place of the other baby because the wet nurse was being paid to feed someone else's baby. That was her livelihood. And it was essential that that baby thrive. And so oftentimes the baby that the woman was wet nursing would be nursed more and would essentially be taken care of better than her own infant. Um, There are, well, this is a broad statement, um, but it was known that, that this was the case and that's why guidelines were put into place. So although people primarily breastfed their baby, wet nursing was still um, a very strong practice during that time period. So there was a movement away from the practice of wet nursing between the 16th and the 18th century. And one reason for that was the belief around the need for sexual prohibition during breastfeeding changed. And so that was one big drawback for breastfeeding is the fact that women believed that they had to abstain um, from sexual activity. So Laurent Joubert, a doctor at the time, tried to dispel this myth, and he stated, The woman I hold dearest in the world has nursed all my children. So full of milk is she, and I have not stopped sleeping with her for that reason, and I make love to her as a good husband should to his better half, following the dictates of marriage, and thank God our children have been well nourished and are thriving. I give no advice to others that I do not follow myself. Unsatisfied desire is a major threat to breast milk. First of all, Laurent, get it, okay? Second of all, I love how he just talks about his wife. Like, he's like, so full of milk is she. What a compliment. I love that. So (laughs) this doctor was basically like, listen, my wife had a lot of babies, I still continue to be hitting that and she still makes a lot of milk. So get it because if you have unsatisfied desires, then your wife might be stressed out and the breast milk might not be as good. So he was really out there. He was putting it out there. I wonder how his wife felt about that during that time. But I just love that. So full of milk is she. Like every breastfeeding mom wants to hear that, right? Anyway, so the attitudes around that began to change and they realized that sperm did not curdle your breast milk. So the movement back to a push in maternal breastfeeding was fueled by doctors, philosophers, and interestingly, the church. So Puritans in both England and America during this time period gave sermons about the subject, stating that it was ungodly to avoid the maternal duty of nursing babies and that wet nursing was going against nature and could cause deformity and defects. Women also were told during this period that the milk that they produced, if it was not consumed, then the milk would back up back into her body and spread throughout her body and cause illness and possibly death for the mother. So that's really interesting. So like medieval babies, infants in the 17th and 18th century were given food early. 
health was linked to the weight of the baby and mothers often overfed their babies. And so we see this practice today, right? The more your baby weighs, the better. If your baby's not on the 90th percentile, mothers feel upset and guilty about that. So we see that in the 17th and 18th century as well. And pap continued to be the supplementary food given at this time. So you'll actually... A lot of times if you go into museums and you can look it up online, they had little pap boats. There's some cute little Wedgwood pap boats where they look like tiny little miniature gravy boats and the pap would be put in there and then they would be fed to the babies that way. So during this time, like all other times in history, mothers had challenges with breastfeeding. So even though we've been doing this for a long time, there were still issues like engorgement and flat nipples and things like that. So they did have ways around these things. Um, if a woman had flat nipples, a doctor would recommend that they take off their corset and titillate the nipple to make it become erect. So we still do that. Remedies for engorgement included placing the breast on a warm pancake. And so we do talk about um, using heat. You'll hear that a lot of time for Engorge Mom. To draw out the milk, there have been accounts of mothers being suckled by a puppy or another adult. In the late 19th century in France, there was a man referred to as a suckler. And this is the quote from, about him. You would come upon him in the roads that led from village to village, always going one after another on his way to childbirths. The professors of the Montpelier Medical School have recommended him to their most prominent clients. The suckler was a terrible, ugly peasant with a bushy red beard. Y'all, you got to be desperate if you are letting this terrible, ugly peasant with a bushy red beard suckle your engorgement out. Honestly, give me a puppy. Give me a bunch of warm pancakes. I'm grossed out by that, but apparently that was a thing. So God bless. Um, during this time, rudimentary breast pumps existed and they'd be made from tubes, plungers, and suction devices. There was actually one, and I'll post it, um, from the 1800s where it'd be applied to the mother's breast and there was a tube and she could suck on it to create suction. So they were um, really trying. And there were some that looked like bicycle pumps. And so breast pumps have been around for a few hundred years. And then bottles and alternative feeding methods during this time. So now we're talking about the um, 19th century began to be used as well. And this came with deadly consequences. So the bottles during that time period came with tubes and they were wildly popular, but they were hard to clean. And the tubing was a breeding ground for bacteria. And the Victorians really liked these types of bottles because you could essentially sit the bottle down next to the baby. There'd be a tube in the milk that went up and then it would go into a nipple that looked like a pacifier in the baby's mouth. So you didn't have to hold your baby to feed your baby. You'd set your baby down, put the milk there. And every time they sucked on this pacifier type device, the milk would come up through the tube and they would drink it that way. And primarily at that time, if they were using bottles, they were giving cow's milk or some kind of animal milk. And so the problem was that the tubing was very hard to clean. And so it would breed bacteria. 
and babies would die of diarrhea. And doctors realized this. So there was a big push from doctors against bottle feeding um, because the mortality rates for infants during this time were like shockingly high. So only two out of 10 infants lived to their second birthday. And the bottles actually eventually earned the nickname murder bottles. And there was actually a parenting manual during this time that recommended only cleaning these bottles like once every two weeks. And so that led to, unfortunately, the deaths of many infants. The nipples themselves were also dangerous. So manufacturers would add salts of lead, zinc, and arsenic into the rubber to make it heavier because rubber was sold by the weight. So not only was bacteria a big issue, your baby could be sucking on like an arsenic nipple. So raw cow's milk was the most common substitute for breast milk at that time for bottle feeding moms or what they called hand feeding. But the first infant formula was invented by Justice von Liebig, and he was a chemist in 1865. So it consisted of cow's milk, wheat, and malt flour, and potassium bicarbonate. And so it became wildly popular. And by 1883, there were 27 patented infant formulas. Now, the history of infant formula in itself could be its own episode. But this is when it really became mainstream. So really within the last 140 years. So these formulas were eventually, I mean, at first were liquid, but then they came in powdered form and had sugar, starches, and dextrins that were intended to be added to milk. So there were aggressive marketing campaigns from formula companies and evaporated milk companies, which evaporated milk was invented in the 1880s, that contributed to the decrease in breastfeeding rates in the decades that followed. And what's really interesting is if you look at the formula ads from the late 1800s, you'll see they're very similar to some of the ads that there are today. So I'm just going to read this one. It's melons food for infants and invalids. Melons food when prepared is similar to breast milk. Samples post free from, and then it lists the address. So formula companies say are still using this same advertising. It's similar to breast milk. Get a free sample. See if you like it. So it's really interesting to see how much really hasn't changed in that period of time. Now, during this time, you also have the Industrial Revolution, where you have lower class women who are working in factories and, you know, they're working to support their families. And so being tied down to breastfeeding was was seen as um, not desirable when you had to go work and breast pumps were very rudimentary during that time. And so we do see this shift from alternative feedings um, and a shift away from wet nursing to hand feeding or bottle feeding with these infant formulas. But this came with disastrous consequences. So, you know, we still have germ theory is still very new and bacteria and poor handling of the milk is still causing a lot of infant deaths. So by the late 
1800s, early 1900s, the trend of hand feeding fueled incredibly high infant mortality rates. So we do actually have records from the Chicago Health Department. So in 1897, 18% of Chicago's babies died before their first birthday, and more than 53% of them had died of diarrhea. The Chicago Department of Health estimated that 15 hand-fed babies were dying for every one breastfed infant. So that was crazy. And doctors at this time also realized they, I mean, they were seeing these sick babies come in and they were being hand fed and they were realizing that this was a problem. So when you have hand fed babies dying at a rate of 15 times that of breastfeeding babies, that sounded a big alarm for public health. So they saw this as a major concern and public health workers, actually, there were huge campaigns. So they had posters promoting breastfeeding. There were posters that talked about appropriate sterilization um, and preparation of milk. So there's one from the early 1900s that talks about sterilization with the headline, give the bottle fed baby a chance for its life. So this was really a life or death type situation. So public health workers in urban areas would go out into these like low income areas and educate women about the importance of breastfeeding. If they were having breastfeeding difficulties, they would come visit them sometimes daily. And then they also would educate about sterilization um, for hand feeding mothers and preparation of milk. Um, So we see this in the early 1900s, public health really stepping in and realizing that this is a problem and that um, breastfeeding rates declining led to the higher infant mortality rate. And then by the late 1920s, the laws in most municipalities mandated the pasteurization and hygienic handling of cow's milk, and this urban breastfeeding campaign essentially disappeared. Um, At this time, we see evaporated milk really come into play when it came to infant feeding. So evaporated milk was highly recommended by pediatricians from the 1930s, 1940s. And often they would recommend it mixed as a formula. So they would recommend mixing evaporated milk, water, and caro syrup. And what's interesting about this is that in some rural areas, this can still be seen today. So when I started working for WIC in 20, oh my gosh, 2007, 2007-2008, this was something that we talked about that we may see because it was still being seen in some clinics Um, because, you know, your grandmother or whoever would say, oh, well, this is what I fed my baby. And it was a cheaper alternative to the infant formulas available today. So that was not uncommon. So breastfeeding rates continued to decline during this time as alternative feeding became safer, but also because of the childbirth um, culture change. So during this time, you see we have a shift from giving birth at home with midwives to hospitals. And the suffrage movement was actually a big part of this. So I think when we think about the suffrage movement, we think about women's rights to vote, but it was really women's rights in general. And one thing that women demanded was pain-free childbirth. And the history of childbirth in itself also could be a multi-episode episode, lots of hours, really interesting. So during this time, women shifted to giving birth in the hospital 
and they demanded pain-free childbirth and were given twilight sleep. So twilight sleep was a mix of morphine and scopolamine given to laboring women. And the thing is, it didn't cause them to have a pain-free childbirth. They just couldn't remember it. And so they'd be given twilight sleep and many women, they would like claw at themselves or at the nurses. They'd writhe in pain. Many times they'd be like strapped down and restrained and they just wouldn't remember it. So sometimes you'll talk to women who gave birth between like in the hospitals between the thirties, even into the sixties. And they'll say, yeah, I went into the hospital in labor. And then I woke up and they said, oh, here's your baby. And so that's kind of what the experience was. Um, many times these women could not be active participants in childbirth. So like pushing was an issue. So we see the use of forceps skyrocketing. So babies essentially being pulled out with forceps. So it was not, it, it was traumatic for babies and moms. And this practice was not conducive for supporting breastfeeding. So we talk about that magic hour and skin to skin and, that was not the case. Women were being given twilight sleep. Forceps use was very high. And oftentimes they'd be wheeled to the nursery and given um, a bottle. And so we see that um, during this time. So initiation rates and breastfeeding rates between early 1900s to the 1950s can consistently decrease because of um, infant formula marketing of course, breastfeeding campaigns um, ceasing to exist because infant mortality had decreased, um, as well as birth practices. So if you look at it across decades, the initiation rates in a study in 1911 and 1915 were 70%, nearly 50% from 1926 to 1930, 25% in 1946 to 1950. And then initiation rate was its lowest in 1972 with only 22% of women initiating breastfeeding. But attitudes started to change after that. So in the 70s, we see a change in birthing trends where women are wanting to be more in control and participate in childbirth. They don't want to just go into the hospital and be put asleep. They're starting to realize that that's not good for moms or babies. And they wanted their partners with them. And so we do start to see this trend back to a more natural childbirth. Um, we have pain medications that do not impact breastfeeding as much. So epidurals became more popular. Um, women weren't just given morphine and then showed their baby when they woke up. So that was a good thing. So breastfeeding mothers did have more support through like mother to mother support groups like La Leche League, which was founded in the fifties. And we'll do a whole episode just about La Leche League. They're awesome. Um, there was increased knowledge about the breastfeeding, uh, uh, benefits of breastfeeding, Public health campaigns were aimed at increasing breastfeeding rates in the 80s, and then the emergence of a new classification of medical professionals who specialized in providing breastfeeding education and support, which were lactation consultants. So the lactation consultant was born. So prior to lactation consultants um, working with helping breastfeeding moms, it would often be the midwives and 
other women, older women who would help with breastfeeding. So if you're a woman and you're having breastfeeding problems and it's, you know, 1762, your mother or your aunt or your older sister who had breastfed her own babies would be able to help you, right? So, but by the time we get to 1983, we have generations of women who did not breastfeed their babies and the medical profession, which was not really up to date into best practices with breastfeeding. It was like lost knowledge. And so the IBLCE was founded by a group of La Leche League leaders who wanted to professionalize the skills of women who um, supported breastfeeding and had that breastfeeding knowledge. And so that happened in 1985. And so since that time, we've continued to see education among professionals increase. We've seen public health campaigns promoting breastfeeding, as well as hospital initiatives such as baby friendly. And so breastfeeding rights have continued to increase since that time. So we actually have higher initiation rates now than we did in the 1911 and 1915 cohort um, when they studied initiation rates of breastfeeding um, for women. So the CDC did release their key breastfeeding indicators of infants born in 2017. And this is from a national immunization survey from 2018 to 2019. So currently the percent of, percentage of infants who are breastfed ever is 84.1%. The percentage of infants who are breastfed at six months is 58.3%. And the percentage of infants who are breastfed at all at one year is 35.3%. The percentage of infants who are breastfed exclusively through three months is 46.9%, and through six months, 25.6%. So we do see that a big drop-off between three and six months. Um, the percentage of employers that have worksite lactation programs is 51%, so we still have a lot of work to do there. And the percentage of breastfed infants who receive formula supplementation within the first two days of life is currently 19.2%. So we do see high initiation rates, but one-fifth um, do receive formula supplementation. So currently, infants living in the southeast are the least likely to be breastfed at six months, then infants living in other areas of the country, and infants in rural areas are less likely to ever be breastfed than infants living in urban areas. Um, we also know that minority women are less likely to initiate breastfeeding as well as younger moms and less educated moms. And so there's a, still a lot of work to do in terms of breastfeeding promotion and support. But I do see that it is trending upward, which is really good. And I think when you look long-term at history and some of the reasons why breastfeeding did fall out of favor, especially when the within the past 100 years, we can make corrections to help reverse that. So I hope that you found this interesting. If you need help with milk supply, I do not recommend rubbing the ashes of bats on your breasts and sperm does not curdle your breast milk. So isn't that good to know? Anyway, I hope you enjoyed this different type of episode and um, if you want to leave your feedback or just tell us that we're great, you can email us at thesnarkyboobqueens at gmail.com. You can follow us on Facebook at thesnarkyboobqueens, and you can follow us on Instagram at thesnarkyboobqueens. 
Until next time, guys. When in doubt, whip it out. Bye.